0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series talking with writers, podcasters, scholars, artists, filmmakers, and musicians about their favorite stories. Joining me today to talk about the 1931 short story, The Holiness of Ezedrak by Clark Ashton Smith, is Peter Biebergall. Peter is the editor of a just truly awesome, truly fantastic collection of sword and sorcery stories called Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Really good to be here. So, Peter, what is Appendix N, and and also how did this project come about?
1: So Appendix N, as, as some of your, or maybe most of your listeners know, is a section in the original. Advanced, the first edition of the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Masters Guide, penned mostly by Gary Gygax, and is in a, literally the appendix N of that <laughs> of that book, which describes briefly what Gygax lists as the stories and authors and novels that seemed to have the most influence on him as he was thinking about and developing and writing the rules for Dungeons & Dragons. So it's it's certainly not comprehensive, and he says that it's not comprehensive. I mean, he says essentially, you know, it's sort of probably the best version that he had at the time, right, of, of what... Um, of of those stories and authors that he was thinking of i mean there's some joking about some uh recently somebody said it was really just what he had on his desk at the time (laughs) you know um but it probably is a little bit more than that because he does also say um you know that he grew up watching science fiction fantasy and horror movies and he read tons of comic books and um mythology And so, but, you know, he is uh, mainly a a, a reader of science fiction fantasy. And so, again, he cites these works. What he says is, quote, were particular inspiration. And so what the anthology is an attempt to the best I could. And there's been some criticism of it um, in certain circles about whether or not I. was, uh, did I honor the list in in the ways that it should be honored? I think that I did. Um, So it's my attempt to draw from that list a collection of stories that for me feel like they cap of the list that these stories best capture the flavor of the kind of D&D that I love and play, right, and, and played as a kid. So, for example, I didn't include some of the more science fiction-related authors because, again, they didn't really fit into a kind of um, sensibility that I have about what I love about the game, which is really its, its weird sword and sorcery
0: background. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience with D&D and, and like probably many of our listeners and, and perhaps you as well, Peter, uh, gaming was actually really my entry into this type of literature to to begin with. I had other stuff that I liked to read before I was a, a gamer in, in my, my childhood and adolescence, but it was really gaming that introduced me to people like Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith, all of these yeah, weird tales. Right. right. And, I only ever
1: really knew Tolkien, right? as a kid before I played D&D or, um, but there was other, and there were other things that I had gleaned from comic books and things like that. But yeah, it was really an exposure to a different way of thinking about reading also. And so some of the things though, that I had to, so there were limitations also on what I could choose. First of all, I didn't want to have novel excerpts. So, and, and Gygax cites a lot of novels but I did want I did feel and still do feel that other stories by those same authors are representative of their work as a whole or at least the novels that Gygax cites as being an influence to him so I had that limitation I also there there's a um there's a misunderstanding that uh, that a lot of this material is available in the um, public domain but it's actually not i would say that of the book only of this list that guy probably only lord dunsany some hp lovecraft is available in the public domain but almost everything is still either with the estates of the authors or the authors themselves who are still living so there was also having to acquire the rights to a lot of these, of which some I just didn't, wasn't able to, to secure. And it's also costly, uh, you know, uh, to pay for those. So, so there are things here that, uh, in Gygax's list that I would love to have had, but that I simply couldn't for those reasons. But, you know, there are a couple of, of, Surprises here, too, that some I think a lot of folks who are very familiar with the appendix and list in general weren't aware of. For example, Gygax does mention the anthology called Swords Against Darkness. And from uh, that book, I discovered a story by David Madison. Um, And he is really only known sort of for a few stories that he published in sort of the zines, which were, you know, a big part of fantasy and science fiction literature in the sixties and seventies before it was becoming more and more mainstream. Those fanzines were really the place where you would discover authors and where a lot of authors got their start. He ended up um, committing suicide at a very young age Probably in his in his 20s and had only written a few stories, but I was able to get in touch with a friend of his who actually is the holder of his estate and all his works and was kind enough to let me include uh, the Tower of Darkness um, story in there. And it's a, a lot of the reviews that I've seen, a lot of the people I've talked to about it, they always call out that story as, you know, sort of one of the treasures of of the collection.
0: Yeah, that was certainly my response. This is a, an absolutely awesome collection. There's, you know, some really great, uh, you know, standard maybe kind of kind of classics. You've got the Tower of the Elephant by Robert E. Howard here, but there are also a lot of hidden gems. And this David Madison story was absolutely one of them. I had never heard of him, and you you in in the introduction you talk about his uh, his his suicide at a, at an early age, something he shares in common with Robert E. Howard, in fact, and uh, that really compelled me to put him on our list. So it's. Some point next year, we're going to cover a a story of his. It might actually be this story that you've got included here, because although there are a lot of reasons we do this show, certainly one of them is to keep alive the the works of these writers from uh, you know decades ago, some of them a a century or more ago. And this seems like something that we could do to help keep uh, keep his work uh, in the in the consciousness. And so uh, I really appreciate that you pointed him out to us as well. And you know, you made a joke earlier, Peter, about how perhaps you know. Appendix N is maybe just what Gygax had on his desk, but, you know, everything that's actually in Appendix N, I think could fill, you know, an entire basement library. And so you had to make some real hard choices here about, you know, what story to select. And, you know, even once you had pared down the list, and I I know you have said that you had some constraints simply by about, you know, sim- simply because of what was available, but what was the the method that you had for, for choosing these stories? And, and how much extra reading did you have to do for this?
1: Yeah, I did, you know did a lot, and I and I had some read some things that I had never read before. I I was had never in my fifty plus years read Lord Dunsany, and absolutely fell in love with his work. And that story in particular uh, that's included is really just a, a special treat. I mean, there's just there's lines in there, single lines that are just startlingly imaginative and weird. And really, I think some, in some ways for me, capture this sort of er, sword and sorcery sensibility, you know, that a lot of people would end up um, being, I think a lot of would be very influenced by particularly Lovecraft and and Howard. So yeah, it was, it was encountering a lot of things for the first time it was going through anthologies. It was having, you know, to just simply not again, because I was struggling with not wanting to do novel excerpts, I would have to sort of get a flavor of the novels and then look through stories by the same author to see if I could find something that felt again, that it, it offered the same kinds of sensibilities. So for example, um, the Paul Anderson story, which is included, isn't the only thing that that Gygax lists is Three Hearts and Three Lines, The High Crusade, and the Broken Sword. The story um by by Paul Anderson is a sort of Viking story, which is very much in the theme of his broken sword novel. So I and it's also a story that is included in one of the swords against darkness volume. So in that way, I felt like I was able to sort of, you know, wrangle a story that isn't actually mentioned here, but I feel is certainly something that is absolutely in the spirit of, of this, of of Gygax's list. There's only a few places where I feel like I had to do that. But for the most part, the stories do come directly from the list that Gygax had. But, you know, I had to make some hard choices and maybe some of them are controversial. And I say controversial because for a lot of folks, this appendix N is in some ways sort of a canonical holy text that should in no way be misconstrued or thought about in any way except as a sort of literal snapshot into exactly what Guy Gax was thinking. So I had to bend that a little bit and I was yeah, I was surprised to know that there I didn't know that, that there were folks who who felt that way about about this list. But I do feel that the work that that um the publisher Strange Attractor and I did is 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 a is a solid and I think honors is a solid reflection of Gax's list and, and honors the original appendix M.
0: And I will say, since you mentioned the the publisher, Peter, the Stranger Tractor did just a phenomenal job of, of making the physical volume here. There was a limited run in hardcover that I was not able to get, but the trade paperback is a sturdy and solidly built book that will actually be one of the the prize things that uh, I leave to, to uh, my son when oh, it's my you. time to, to leave. It's a really, really wonderful volume. So I, I encourage people to pick up the the physical volume here as well. I mean, just like nice, thick pages, beautiful white. That's just that's absolutely just absolutely a joy of a physical book to hold in your hand. I've got one last question for you on the book, Peter, before we move into talking about Clark Ashton Smith, uh, which is simply to say that in your introduction you tease the idea that there may be a second volume, and I, I just have to know if there are concrete plans for that, and and if there are, what direction that would take.
1: Yes, I think that direct that would go to, you know, the way in which this term Appendix N has started to take on a life of its own. You know, a lot of people now use it just to mean the sort of collection of stories, novels and authors that sort of influence their own gaming, the development of gaming systems, other role playing games that might include versions of Appendix M with, you know, they're not called Appendix M. And then there's just sort of the way in which, as gamers, people who love D&D, when we're making game, you know, sort of designing, say, a dungeon, how there's all these other influences that come into play for ourselves individually. So the idea of sort of a, a next volume would be sort of a, an appendix N squared, which is more directly the kinds of things that would be my own personal appendix n right that that have that has impacted my again my gaming my thinking about role playing games what i love about that whole genre of, of sword and sorcery gaming and so that's sort of what we're looking at i i would say that as a as a as a way of moving into clark ashton smith I, that I include a Clark Ashton Smith story in the anthology, and Clark Ashton Smith is not included in Gary Gygax's Appendix N. And I um, own that that it's uh, that I took a liberty with adding a Clark Ashton Smith story. I think Clark Ashton Smith should be <laughs> in Appendix <laughs> N, and I know that I've I've read later that some folks that Gary Gygax had said that he didn't like Clark Ashton Smith. I I just think that the that hit either the, the deliberate non-inclusion of it of him or the for whatever reason just missed opportunity for Guy Gax to include Clark Ashton Smith. I felt I took it on myself to rectify <laughs> that problem um, and added a, a Clark Ashton Smith. Now Clark Ashton Smith is named in subsequent versions of. Other d and d editions that have their own sort of recommended reading that aren't actually appendix ends, but you know and and Clark Ashton Smith is included there, so um I do think that he deserves a place in thinking about sword and sorcery role playing, specifically Dungeons and Dragons. As at least somebody to wrestle with why or why he wasn't included. And so, you know, maybe the addition is a purposeful attempt at controversy on my part.
0: Yeah, this is something that has been a bit, a bit controversial. I think from a number of different angles, this idea of whether or not Clark Ashton Smith does actually belong on that list or not. But to my mind, it just seems so obvious that really anyone who was publishing in, in Weird Tales belongs on, on, on the list. But I would have been real interested to hear Gary Gygax explain, you, you know, that he didn't like Clark Ashton Smith and why, and you know, right why Robert E. Howard is who we should go to and not Clark Ashton Smith, even though there's right. there's an awful right. lot of overlap, and are both doing a lot of uh, of sword and sorcery work. And in particular, I think you know Smith is someone who does more, you know, more sorcery stuff, and uh, Howard is someone who did more of the sword in sword and sorcery. And so, I think you need that's Clark right. Ashton Smith his like to I think see.
1: that's exactly right. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it. And there is also, similarly to that, is the question of whether more should have been in the list. With the Jarelle of Jory stories.
0: Right. And those are awesome. I mean, she's just absolutely fantastic. She also did a lot of cool sci fi stuff and I think even yes. like a real early space horror but story. I cannot believe that
1: Gygax was not aware of her work and was not inspired by. I, what's also interesting about Jarelle of Jury, we I won't go too far into this, but it does speak a little bit to what we might talk about is that the story that I include specifically, she's decidedly a Christian character and there is a, it could be argued that, you know, some of D&D does include a somewhat Christian sensibility, you know, especially in terms of the cleric and Gax's own faith um, as a, as a, as a believing Christian. And so I, I you know, I, again, I think there is a, a case to be made, like you say, that all weird, uh, tales author should be should be part of that, but there were some that aren't there that again do show up in subsequent lists that I felt captured something that that is really essential.
0: And, and Jarrell of Jory is actually a really great transition, I think, to talking about the Smith story that we're going to get to today, the holiness of Azedarak, because they they share a similar setting. In that uh, Jarrell of Jory, the the Jory there is a sort of made up, uh, fantastical, uh, imaginary section of uh, high medieval France, and that's literally yes. what we're going to get in this Clark Ashton Smith story as well. This is one of the stories in his Avaronia setting. Avaronia is a made up region in France. Uh, in the High Middle Ages, it's actually in southern France, and I'm pretty sure that Jory actually is explicitly northern France. So I don't quite know what you know the, the sort of connection there is, but it does seem like um, they one of them at least was riffing on the other in in some way. And uh, just to maybe continue to orient us here, and I'm actually going to just launch into giving a little synopsis of the story, so we can start to talk about some of the details as well. We do get a date for this story in the High Middle Ages; it's it's eleven seventy five, and the deal with this story is that Ezederach, uh the Ezedirac of the title is the Bishop of uh, Hime, uh, which is a, a city here in Averonia, but he is not only the Bishop, he's also secretly a sorcerer who deals with Yog satat and Satagwi uh, and other old ones. And of course, these are mispronunciations of names that we get elsewhere in the, the Cthulhu mythos. And, and, and no, and more known like a,
1: a, a Azazel and
0: Yes, right. Some 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 non made up, uh, some non non made up old that. ones as well. Real demons, hey, right? <laughs> well, and in fact, uses uh, the, the the phrase here, uh, satanic and also pre satanic as a, as a, like a way of um, uh, uh, distinguishing eras of, of uh, or types perhaps of demon worship. It's very interesting. <laughs> well, the the plot is that Azedarax's superior is. In, in the church is is onto him. And so he has sent a Benedictine monk named Brother Ambrose to investigate. And that's all really the backstory, because as we get into the story, Ambrose has already finished up his investigation. He's even stolen a Zatarak's copy of the Book of Ibon, which is uh, more or less Clark Ashton Smith's version of the the Necronomicon. This is a a device that Brandon and I have encountered before in the Smith story, the the Door to Saturn. We'll encounter it again because it's all over Smith's work. But at any rate, Ambrose is on his way to report back to his superior and he has stopped at an inn for the night because, hey, this is a fantasy story and that necessitates an inn at some point. And Zedric's henchman uh, is there and he tricks Ambrose into drinking something in his wine that we, the readers, assume is poison. But it turns out not to be poison, but it's actually a potion. Uh, And in fact, it is a time travel potion. And Ambrose travels back to 475, where he finds himself on top of a pagan altar. It's a a druidic altar. He is surrounded by white-robed priests who are, well, they're surprised to see him, Uh, but they're also perfectly ready (laughs) to just immediately offer him up as a human sacrifice. But Ambrose is saved. He's saved by a local woman named Moriamis, uh, who happens to be a a powerful enchantress, and uh, she's much feared by the druids, or at least, you know, she says that she is. And from Moriamis this name by the way is it's latin eight and it it's clearly meaning something about like um love and and death <laughs> here though i you know don't know that we need to go into that but it just jumps off the page when you're seeing it in writing but from her from Moriamis we learn that Azirak himself is actually uh, from this time and place but he had he but he himself had used a time travel potion to go to the future which angered Moriamis who was his lover But she has some of Azedirac's time travel potions, and so she's able to send Ambrose back to the future... But, eh, you know, why not take a month to hang out with Moriamis first? Uh, Ambrose, I should say, is uh, described as calmly, of course, a very important word for D&D. And so Ambrose uh, relaxes his monastic vows and spends a month as Moriamis' lover before he does indeed go back to the future. But he overshoots. He ends up too far in the future. He ends up in 1230 instead of 1175. And everyone involved in the investigation is now long dead, But fortunately, Ambrose has another potion from Moriamis that lets him return to 475. Ambrose does that, but it turns out Moriamis is out of potions, so he's just going to have to stay there and be her lover forever and ever. And the story ends (laughs) with uh, the information that she never tells him that she messed up the first potion on purpose so that he would have to come back. And that's the, the story. So... Peter, in this series, I, I normally have let the the guest pick any story they want to share with me in our audience. But in this case, I, I kind of forced this one on you because <laughs> of its use of religion, which is a part of your background. And that's really where I want to start this conversation. But maybe we should actually begin by saying that you did a, a graduate degree at Harvard Divinity School, and you've also co-written a book about faith and religion called The Faith Between Us. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your religious studies background before we uh, approach the story through that that lens
1: yeah and thank you for input i mean i i feel like i must have read this story I've, I've reviewed this book um well the collection that i have the penguin classics version um and you know and just in my encounters with him but it was definitely felt new to me and gosh what a talk about a weird story and uh, which i would love to get into just how surprised i was at the that sudden turn it took, but um, the my background is essentially yeah I studied uh, religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School. I have a master's in theological studies, very you know sort of academic oriented degree, not a, a ministry degree. Um, I grew up in a fairly secularly observant Jewish household, you know, so we sat together for Passover and my mother lit her Friday night candles and I was bar mitzvah and my brother was, but, you know, again, very much a, a cultural uh, Judaism uh, rather than a theological one, as you know, as, as the case would be for I think a lot of American Jews of my generation and, um, but always fascinated with religion, but, Often by way of these sort of stranger or f- sort of fringe encounters with with those things. So, you know, I was around the same time I was bar mitzvahed, maybe, you know, a year or so later, I went to Salem, Massachusetts on the bus and went into one of the occult bookstores there and bought the Mathers translation of the key of Solomon, the King. And, you know, looking, if you're familiar with that, with that book, that it's a medieval grimoire of um, angel and demon conjuration and bindings. And it's probably one of the most influential of the grimoires along with the, with the goetic material, like the lesser key of Solomon. But the key of Solomon really is sort of a standout example of medieval magic that is deeply religious in its approach. You are not calling upon infernal entities for your power. You're calling upon God for the power to be able to conjure and bind these supernal entities and so you know as a kid to encounter this thing sort of stepping right outside of a of my bar mitzvah you know (laughs) to see you know hebrew letters and and sort of you know mentions of the tetragrammaton you know and all of these the names of angels and to see that all in the service of magic in the service of, of that was really mind-blowing. I mean, it changed my life in some ways. I mean, not insofar as I ever attempted to conjure <laughs> an entity from the Key of Solomon, but insofar as I was on a path, right, of, of I knew in some ways how, uh, what my my life would be about in terms of the things that I wanted to study and write about and read about and and it just really has to do a lot with, I think, how the lived religion is often very different from the scriptural, uh, legal, or prescribed religion, right? And so, um, but, you know, as I, you know, as I got older and became more interested in my own uh you know, the, the, the religion I was born into, I, you know, I studied Judaism more, but even when I studied Judaism, it was always flavored by Kabbalistic things. And and again, you know, always interested in magic, especially as magic was practiced by the devout, as it were. And I think that that's part of the thing that I loved about this story I, I, you know, I want to say that be, I almost wish that he had said it a little bit later, because I feel like there, we we know more explicitly about, you know, early Renaissance and Renaissance alchemical, magical, and Kabbalistic practices by Christian, right. Um, men for all 10 purposes, whether it's Bruno or um, Marindola, you know, all these, all these folks. And so there was a little bit, I remember as I was, started reading the story, I was immediately thought that um, Azedarak and his colleague reminded me a little bit of like John D and Edward Kelly in the sense that I thought maybe Smith was sort of just Thinking or had been, you know, had known about those fellows, and this idea that there is um, this learned magician, alchemist, especially with the potions, right? You get right away, you get into a more alchemical notion of what these folks are doing.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that. It, with zedereek he's called a sorcerer but in fact we don't see him doing any actual sorcery in this story but we do learn that he's he he does alchemy or at least did back when he lived in the fifth century well actually I guess we know that he does too because that's you know the potion that sends uh that, that, that sends Ambrose back is you know something he brewed up uh here in the in the 12th century but yeah I, I think you're you're absolutely right right as someone who you know well, I I'm a, I am a medieval historian by by training Smith's understanding of the Middle Ages is real bad I mean yeah, it's real yes. It's real, real bad. Uh, He's not sure when people are speaking Latin versus speaking French. He doesn't actually know when Christianity spread. I mean, he's just wrong about all of that. None of that undermines the, you know, the fun of the story, I don't think. But also, you're right, going the other way and thinking about his understanding of the high Middle Ages versus uh, the late Middle Ages and early modernity. He's does this thing that that so many of my students often do too, which is to have this kind of pop culture understanding of the Middle Ages as a a time of superstition, a time of of, of witchcraft and so on, when really it's not actually so much the high middle ages the most of those things are actually from early modernity and they've they've gotten into our pop culture uh, by way of uh, like elizabethan and jacobean drama uh, among right. other things and That's so yeah right. i think you're you're absolutely right to say that the feel of azatrak and what he's up to is way more you know 14th 15th even 16th century than it is 12th century
1: yes yep and it's interesting i i just want to give a shout out i don't know him personally um, but there's a fellow named Brian Johnson, um, who's a scholar, and he just put out a book called Necromancy in the Medici Library, which is the translation of some of this material um, from that time that sort of, you know, illuminates the ways in which people connected to the church were practicing or at least Taking account of these kinds of ritual, uh, ceremonial, magical practices, and that's, I find, you know, that's one of the more interesting things to me about what is is thematically true in Smith's story, right? That people of the that, that, and and that people could make a distinction between high and low magic in a way that gave you in some ways theological permission to do certain kinds of magical practice that seem to be divine in nature as to, as opposed to say low folk magic, which would be considered um, gross, right? Or, Potentially more influenced by demonic or satanic forces
0: right, one of the things that that happens or really maybe I should say one of the reasons why you know, thinking about witchcraft and, and alchemy as early modern phenomenon is that they become divorced from mainstream both Christianity and and Judaism in that time because of the, the numbers of, of of different religious reformations that are happening in the aftermath of the, the Black Death, including the big Protestant reformation of Martin Luther, that tries to actually remove magic from the practice of religion, but in Europe from uh, the the period of the Roman Republic all the way up until the the late Middle Ages and and really early modernity there would not really have been seen to be a distinction there. There's a really uh, phenomenal uh, book. It's an old school book. I think, it's, uh, gosh, might even be almost fifty years old now. Called "Religion and the Decline of Magic" by a great oh, scholar yeah. named yes. Keith Thomas, and yeah. who, who details this just so brilliantly and where we get this divide. But you're right, Smith. I think you know here in in 1175. Christians certainly would have believed in various types of magic, but they would have actually gone to the bishop <laughs> to get the, the magic done, the healing, uh, you, know, you know, they wouldn't have seen too much of a difference between healing prayers and uh, the, the use of like amulets and even different types of potions that you would actually get from someone who's ordained someone who is officially a part of the, of the Christian church at That's this time. Right. And there was also an attempt to take
1: say what was Kabbalistic or hermetic understanding to show those things as actually being prophetically Christian ultimately, right? It wasn't that there was, you know, so you could still go back to say Egyptian magical practice or what they believed was, which was probably actually more Gnostic anyways, but, when you look at the history of the of the Hermetic texts, are probably later than um, they're not ancient Egyptian, right? They're probably more second and third centuries, my understanding. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, but those that those that the idea and because those things themselves contain sort of um, coded Christian right language, it would be easy to see these things as. Again, either prophetically, ultimately Christian or sort of er Christian in some ways, but that none of this was to disavow. I mean, for those who even those who were accused of being heretics like Bruno, I still think they themselves believe they were true Christians.
0: Absolutely. And this is, you know, to be fair to Smith's understanding of the High Middle Ages, this is a move that does maybe really get started, not actually too long after he has set this story. I think We tend to think of, you know, in our pop culture today, we I guess we think of the Spanish Inquisition in terms of Monty Python, or we think of the Inquisition, I guess, right, as the Spanish Inquisition and think of that in terms of Monty Python. But it does actually get going in France a little bit, uh, you know, after the year 1200 uh, to root out heresies. And so I, yes. you know, I was reading this story and thinking, Smith, man, why didn't you just set this, you know, 50 years later, set it in 1225 or 1230, where you actually have Ambrose get to, and rather than have Ambrose be a Benedictine monk, have him be a Dominican, like this brand new thing that would have been, I think, really oh, right, cool. Right. I could have brought right. the, you know, origins of the Dominican order actually into the Cthulhu mythos would have been just a, a really cool move. I, I would have thought, but uh, um, sadly, I do not have a time traveling Potion to go back and give Smith this right, exactly. advice.
1: <laughs> There's also what's interesting too. We have to remember too when talking about magic and beliefs in magic is, at that time is how um, ultimately a lot of that had to was classist and misogynistic, right? So uh, uh, a a priest reading kabbalistic texts and and you know maybe even drawing out a magic circle. A similar activity, at least in kind, by a woman in a village, <laughs> right, is going to be seen as two completely different activities, even though they might actually be, the aim might actually be the same, right? And so the one who is gets access, one gets access to all the secret um, and archived um, manuscripts and the other is burned alive, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain sense in which it's it's okay to be performing magic so long as you're in the club, so long as you've been given a sort of official permission to do it. But if you have not, then you're going to be in big trouble, even if you are literally doing the exact same things as people in the club. I mean, you know, it's it's like you need to have a license uh, to do this. And um, yeah, it's not a fine; it's it's yeah, it's being burned at the stake is the punishment for operating without a license.
1: That's right. I was also curious too that he would use a science fictional. Um, MacGuffin is like a time travel potion because yeah. it's just not something that you really see in the. I mean, there are certain tropes that come up again and again and again in the history of of, of European magic, whether it's searching for treasure or even winning at at at, at gambling you know, things like that. But you don't see or I've never come across anything having to do with time travel. I mean, even the Key of Solomon has a spell for invisibility. But the the idea of time travel and the sort of science fictional, you know, sensibility of that was was surprising to me. And in some ways, a, a little disappointing in terms of the overall story, because I was I, I was how do I say it? I was disappointed I'm using that word again. Forgive me. That it turns out that Azendoharac was originally pre-Christian, and he had time traveled into the eleven hundreds. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. You know why? Not not really clear <laughs> at all. Like what he's what he's doing there. But yeah, that's that's the backstory.
1: Yeah. And so so that was disappointing that he I, I like the idea more that he really was this sort of corrupt entity within the ch- that grew up inside the church. Right. Not that he sort of came from somewhere else and just imposed himself. Um, so I, I, I didn't know if I thought that was the best term. The other thing I thought was <laughs> that there was a missed opportunity to. That when Ambrose ends up back a little bit in the future from where he started, I thought it was going to be, a, I thought the twist was going to be that Zadirak was now the bishop.
0: Right. That I, I mean, I really thought this was going to be. Like the exact plot of Back to the Future and Back to the Future too. I thought we were heading to Biff Tannen's, you know, nightmare dystopia here, <laughs> except right, that exactly. it's a Cthulhu mythos dystopia. Exactly. That's.
1: <laughs> I really was surprised that oh, he had just died, and like there was no legacy of his demonic activities. There was no, nothing had changed because he wasn't able to stop
0: him. Yeah, In terms of of narrative convention, this story breaks literally every rule possible, right? This is a story that shifts narrative perspective uh, multiple times. And then also, you know, the real protagonist of this story is Brother Ambrose, who has this real cool mission to investigate, uh, you know, someone worshiping Yogg-Sothoth, you know, a bishop of the church in a yeah. big city worshiping Yogg-Sothoth. And he actually finds that he's got, you know, the Book of Ibon, and he's about to bring it back to, uh, to another bishop. And that's, you know, that's the objective here is that he's got to escape because as has discovered that Ambrose took the book, he sent a henchman after him. And so, you know, from the protagonist's perspective, right, this is a story about how he's going to try to escape that henchman and get back to his boss with the book. And then from a storytelling perspective, then you should have obstacles there. And it should be the story about how either he succeeds or fails at that. But yes. instead, Clark Ashton Smith just pulls the rug out from that and says, that's not actually what the story is about. In fact, the story just about how this monk who's, you know, sworn a, a vow of, of celibacy actually Ouch. ends up uh, in the fifth century with a sexy enchantress and it's fine. <laughs> exactly, That's right. <laughs> it's, yes. it's a weird story. Was
1: really not expecting that, um, I mean, I did like the idea when it opened, when that scene opens where he's about to be sacrificed. I thought that was sort of an interesting turn, But it also makes you wonder, why was that the way in which Azarak wanted him out of the picture? Why didn't he just poison him at that point?
0: Right, which is what we're all expecting. (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: Right. Or some other... Um, something else that maybe would have become, he would have become in his thrall or something could have been an interesting turn. I have to say, though, I did love, I mean, I, you know, I, I'll read anything by him, even the ones that I don't think are the most successful. I did really love all the descriptions, you know, the first, the first quote, uh, you know, chapter of the story, I think is just that sort of classic, smith descriptions of all these sort of infernal sorceress type you know activities and the descriptions of him and all that like the thing you said the satanic and pre-satanic and just he throws out these words like head sorcerer and hyperborean script and dragon's blood illuminations all that is really the, gr- the grimly lined lineaments, the grizzled tonsure, the odd ruddy crescent scar on the pallid brow of a zetterac All that stuff is top
0: shelf Smith. Absolutely. I, I highly recommend the first chapter of this story where we are just like, yeah, in Azaterax, like, I don't know, sitting room in his Episcopal palace in this, you know, made up city of, 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 uh, Hime. And, uh, it's really beautifully described, just rich, rich description and doing all this cool stuff, I think, with, yeah, and bringing in actual demons from the Judeo Christian tradition and uh, bringing in Satan and, treating them in the same breath as Yog sothoth which yeah. is- you know, not something that I think Lovecraft uh, would would ever have done. I actually wonder if he had anything to say about this uh, about this story. The story was published a few years before Lovecraft's death, so there might actually be a letter uh, about that. I I, I I regret not having done that research, though. It's like a hundred thousand Lovecraft letters. So well, I don't that's
1: know. a real. I mean, that that's I think is. I don't know if you've ever talked about. It. It's definitely I you know uh, maybe a conversation you might have with somebody in a future episode, but. You know the way in which Derleth tries to right. bring a sort of moral universe into the mythos—that that there can be these sort of somewhat Judeo-Christian forces at work, also, right? That um, that are that are in opposition to the. Old
0: ones. Right. I think people tend to dislike that Derleth did that, know, kind of right. turning Cthulhu mythos into sort of, well, of course, actually, he just invents the idea of Cthulhu mythos to begin with. So, but, but taking the works of Lovecraft, the worldview of Lovecraft, and, and really spinning it into what amounts to a kind of urban fantasy. And I'll admit, I prefer Lovecraft to, you know, Derleth's version of urban fantasy myself, but yes. I certainly find it intellectually interesting. And I am really interested in seeing. Well, I would be real interested to see if there is more like this in Clark Ashton Smith, who I don't really know all that well. Uh, He just, in fact, this may even be part of why he's not so much in the appendix and why he's not in the appendix and is that I'm not sure how in print he really was in the 70s, but certainly in the Late 80s, my local library just didn't have any Clark Ashton Smith. We had Robert E. Howard and we had H.P. Lovecraft. So I was able to read them as I was getting into gaming. But Smith was someone uh, who I only read in other anthologies.
1: Yeah, I do think that he really it was with the that Smith was really re brought back to public consciousness with the uh, Lynn Carter series of adult fantasy line for Valentine books
0: and that would have been out in the 70s. So maybe maybe it really is just that Gygax didn't like Smith and, and neither right. did my librarian. Uh, Gary Gygax was not my librarian <laughs> growing up. I will say <laughs> right. though, uh, that might be a series of books that somebody should write, Gary Gygax as a uh, small town librarian. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's, uh, well, there's one more thing I want to do, Peter, before we close out this episode, which is to bring in another area of your expertise, which is that you have also written a book about music, about rock and roll. You have a book called Season of the Witch, how the occult saved rock and roll. I have a question for you, but maybe before I pose that question to you, can you just tell us a little bit about that book?
1: That book is an attempt to trace the cultural influence of occult ideas, symbolism, uh, on the sort of trajectory of rock and roll over the years, particularly in the um, 60s and 70s. And so it is not an attempt to try to suggest that there is any actual satanic influence in the music industry, (laughs) but it is an attempt to show how a belief in Satan or a playful love of the symbolism of that would have an impact on rock and roll. So I'll give you the, this is the sort of the pit, the story that I always use, which is that you have the 15 year old kid in his basement, listening to the heavy metal album that has the upside down pentagram on the cover. And he believes and feels empowered by that. And listening to that makes him feel both rebellious and somehow on the cusp of some really cool fringe ideas about things. And it feels like a big F you to his parents but he also gets a little bit of frisson of thinking maybe there really is something um, demonic embedded in the actual wax of the, you know, the, uh, the vinyl of the, of, the, of the record itself and is looking for symbols on the cover and listening carefully to the lyrics. Then you have the band who, yeah, the, one of the singers thought it was fun reading Anton LaVey's um, satanic bible and their producer, manager said, Hey, you know what we should do, we should throw an upside-down pentagram on the cover of the album to be to just make things look cool. It's as far as it goes for them. But then you have the kids' parents upstairs wringing their hair out about how their this music is um actually calling the devil into their home to possess their beloved child. So you have this very basic symbol this pentagram and in this case flipped upside down or not and all the ways in which it sort of triggers these different responses in these various parts of culture, right? The parents, the teenagers, the music industry, the musicians themselves, all of that. And so it's, it's all of those things coming together that create this, Sort of occult resonance that has, I think, has played its way through even um, with um, Elvis Presley, who was accused of his of the way he danced uh, being something that was potentially um, demonic in its in its um, feelings, right? In that it would bring up these kind of sinful thoughts in people all the way. To um, current bands that are actually occult practitioners who practice magic and um, bring that, that that into their music um, by way of their own spiritual uh, relationship to their beliefs and what they believe their art is. So, you know, it, it's that it's that whole range of ways in which um Western culture has engaged with with these ideas and with these symbols.
0: And there's so much overlap here, in your your story about the reaction of these parents, with uh, the reaction that many parents had to discovering D and D books in their uh, their kids' bedrooms too. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So the, the fun thing that we want to do here to to intersect season of the witch with this Clark Ashton Smith story is to I don't know to come up with uh, at least one song that we we might use as a as a soundtrack for this. And I, I wonder if there even was something that you intentionally put on to accompany your reading of this. Oh
1: let's see what would be, you know, it's easy with some things like for, um, Elric, you get Michael Moorcock, you know, with, with Elric and Moorcock, you get Hawkwind. Oh yeah. Um, you know, um, you know, there are some things that are, um, better than others. I would say that Smith could do well by some black Sabbath maybe. Um, I, I mean, again, I'm sort of thinking more about thinking about that kid. List, you know, just bought his D and D box set reading. It just, it has a pile of Ballantine fantasy paperbacks been, you know, is reading Clark Ashton Smith. What's he listening to, you know? Um, you know how it, so it's sort of the soundtrack for me is the soundtrack of, of the, of that broader culture rather than a, a, a soundtrack to the story itself,
0: if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I had been thinking Iron Maiden uh, oh, because yes. Iron Maiden loves to do songs about history. I don't know that they've got any particular song about, you know, 12th century Southern France or 5th yes. century Southern France for that matter, but they love to do songs about history that are you know, intersecting certainly with like the, the occult or, um, you know, the, the magical and alchemical traditions that you were talking about earlier.
1: Yes. Yep. You could also maybe do something by... Um... Yeah, it has to be a little bit darker uh, than than most. There's a a band called Pentagram Day of Reckoning is a a great one. Um, And there was another band um, also of that time, not as well known, called Black Widow. Come to the Sabbath, I think. Uh, That's what I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for Come to the Sabbath by Black Widow as the uh, soundtrack to this story.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I I don't actually get to listen to a lot of like loud music anymore. We have a year and a half old uh, toddler in our house, and I do most of my work for, for the podcasting or well, really anything else. All my reading time happens at like two, three, four in the morning when oh, yes. uh, I've got the baby monitor, but also I need to be quiet in the house, but I like to have music on, but I can't do the headphones because I've got the monitor. And so I end up listening to a lot of classical music and a lot of film score. And I actually not so much while I was doing my first read or second read even of this story, but just this morning when I wanted to type up some some notes for it, uh, I just hit sort of, you know, shuffle uh, on that. And it r- randomly played for me uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score to the film The Omen. And I have to say, oh, that gosh. actually was perfect for it. Love that movie. Yeah, that did make me think that maybe something supernatural was going on in my own house, and so it's actually exactly. a very creepy yes, uh, pre-dawn hours here uh, to today. Indeed. Well, all right, Peter. Do you have any uh, final thoughts on this story before we close out the episode?
1: I mean, I think I just want to give a shout out to just reading more Clark Ashton Smith, and I think this is this story contains, you know. I think for, you know, for a lot of these kinds of authors, any given story is going to contain the worst and best of them. Um, and I think this is a good example of, of the worst and the best of Clark Ashton Smith.
0: Well I think that's absolutely right. I think that Smith is actually pretty widely regarded as being the best wordsmith of the Weird Tales big 3 of so. Howard and Lovecraft that he can really write the heck out of a sentence which I think is absolutely true. But I, I do think that sometimes his narrative technique is is is, is the worst yep. of, of those three and this is an example of that where yeah. this is a story without a plot, it's even a story without a protagonist and a perspective. Exactly. But yet the sentences are fun to read, the descriptions are great and it's a well, bonker story there's that's
1: called which you don't even get in a Lovecraft story half the time, you know? And I also think that any one sentence here rendered by Lovecraft would make you groan, whereas at least with Smith you would give him a little bit more of a pass. Because yeah. you know <laughs> that underneath that all is the poet's sensibility
0: that's right i think so often smith is really actually just trying to translate images that he's got into into prose and and i think that this is not the best story i have ever read and it is certainly not the best story that clark ash and smith ever wrote but yet still i would recommend this to anyone oh, who's really who's interested yes. especially
1: in, that the, the turns of the narrative are really are really something a little bit of a whiplash there a few times, but
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there might be some lessons for you know a game master here. You know, if you're not really liking what the uh, the adventure is, is, or if you're not really liking what your players are up to, just slip them a time travel potion. Exactly. And, <laughs> and <laughs> exactly. now you're back in charge, I guess. <laughs> <That's> excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. So, Peter, uh, thank you so much for guest hosting with me today. Thank you. I really love being here and speaking with you. And if you, dear listener, would like to, to join us in conversation about this story, I hope you'll drop by the, the forums at claytemplemedia.com. You can also come by the Clay Temple Media subreddit. Let us know what you thought of this story. And also, please be sure to pick up a copy of Peter's anthology, Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you can also pick up Season of the Witch and The, the Faith Between Us, as, as well as uh, some other books. And for our Gene Wolfe audience as well, I should say that uh, Peter had the the fortune of interviewing Gene. Wolf. It's an interview that was published on the New Yorker website. I'll have a link for that in the, the show notes, though. I imagine most of our Gene Wolf listeners have already already read that. And before I let you go, Peter, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing?
1: Twitter is a good place. Just uh, my full name, Peter Piepergall, uh, all one word. Uh, if you want to drop a link to that and, and Instagram. And um, I keep those open for messages. So if anybody wanted to reach out, I'd love to hear from
0: people. And Brandon and I are going to be back on August 10th with our regularly scheduled episode. This is going to be a bit of space dystopia from Roger Zelazny. It's his novella, The Furies. And for those of you especially interested in Sword and Sorcery, we will have a uh, Robert E. Howard Conan story coming up not too long after that. That's uh, Queen of the Black Coast. And we've also got some Fawford and Grey Mouser coming up this year as well. But until then, until next time, we greet you and say farewell.